Welcome to the All In Gospel Bible Study. Each week, we move chapter by chapter through the Bible towards a comprehensive understanding of what the Bible teaches. All In Gospel is recorded live in White Bear Lake, Minnesota, featuring Dr. Sean Dickers. You can support this broadcast by subscribing or donating at anchor.fm slash allingospel or visit the allingospel.com website. All right, we're going to pick up in Joshua 9 where we left off. And we'll kick off. Actually, let me, uh, let's say a quick word of prayer before we get going. Uh, dear Lord, before, uh, before we start digging into your word, we need you. Uh, apart from you, Lord, we can't even understand what it says. Uh, so Lord, just open our minds and our hearts. Help us to know your word. Uh, that we don't doubt about it, we don't quibble about it, we understand it because we've read it and we've studied it. Uh, Lord, help us to leave here with clarity, um, not confusion, and help us to uh, just leave here with the amazing feeling of your Holy Spirit, Lord, just working among us and ministering to one another. Lord, be with us as we learn your word, be with us as we pray together, and just bless this time and bless this building. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so we're in Joshua 9. It says, And it came to pass when all the kings who were on this side of the Jordan, in the hills and in the lowland and in all the coasts of the great sea towards Lebanon, the Hittite, the Amorite, the Canaanite, the Perizzite, the Hivite, and the Jebusite heard about it, that they gathered together to fight with Joshua and Israel with one accord. So the context of of Joshua 9 Back in Joshua chapter 6, they defeated Jericho. That was the first major stronghold of the promised land. Um, Chapter 7, they moved without asking God about it. You got the sin of Achan there, but they moved with presumption. They didn't ask God before they did something. And it was a disaster. It was supposed to be a slam dunk. It was not. And then they fixed that. They repented. They readjusted. And then in chapter 8, they moved with God, and it was a massive victory against Ai. And Bethel jumped in too, and they got their army beaten. So with, you know, one city's effort, they took out two. And the same thing's about to happen here. This is what happens. The enemy gathers together and makes a coalition. That just makes it easier for Israel. And God's kind of orchestrating these things. Notice the chapter 9 starts with the word and. Uh, and is coming right after they built the altar on top of Mount Ebel and they read through uh, the word of God. So they did a giant Bible study on top of these mountains. Probably the spies from all of these other kingdoms are watching them read God's word together. And they did sacrifices, a burnt offering and a peace offering. So when we hear peace offering, that's translated into the English today as barbecue feast. So they had a feast. You can smell this stuff coming down off the hills, right? And so they're jealous of the barbecue. And instead of joining the barbecue, they start to make an army to fight the barbecue. So this is, this is something. But as they're reading through this, um, they're reading through it right in Ebal, which is right next to where Abraham was first told that they would get the land in Genesis 12. And it's in the exact same location where Jacob was in Genesis 35. Uh, So this is a special spot, and we're starting to see thematically through the Bible, this spot is kind of the center of where God starts his work in the Holy Land. And where they cross the Jordan is the same place that Jesus got baptized. It's where God likes to start things from. Um, But so they're doing this, and they're putting the word of God out in front. So right after this major victory, instead of celebrating the victory, they're celebrating God's word and his law. And we sometimes hear God's law and and we talk to people who don't like God's law. And why can't we do things outside of God's law? And God's law is just one of those situations where God creates a structure within which we can have our lives be fruitful, like a playground with a fence around it. It's not fun if people can sneak in and if the enemy can come in and snatch your joy away. But when you're safe within that law, you you can enjoy life and the sweetness of life. So they celebrate the law, and that creates this context or this situation. Um, but I love that they did it on the mountain. Whatever, whatever God tells us in the dark, we're supposed to speak in the light. Whatever we hear in the ear, we preach from the rooftops, Matthew 10:27. They hear these things from God, and they're perfectly happy to proclaim it and announce it. So that's the context of where we're at right now. Uh, the word then is getting out. People are knowing this. God's people are back in the land. 
Notice that it says this side of the Jordan in verse 1. Their context has changed because before they were on the other side and now they're on this side, which is west of the Jordan. So the referential point has shifted to Gilgal in the narrative or in the writing style here. And they proclaim God's word. And then we get the fourfold geography. We get the hills, the lowlands, the coasts, and on this and, and, and on this side of the Jordan. So it's a very specific geographic location that they're talking about, that everything's kind of moved into the promised land now. Um, they have heard about it. Uh, when they hear about these things in, at the end of verse 1, all these various nations, um, the point is that they're hearing about it. And I think that's, it, it can't be lost on us because this is one of the critiques of the book, book of Joshua. Look at these violent Israelites going around whacking everybody. They're actually fighting primarily a defensive battle here. And that's what's going to happen in this chapter too. They're fighting against two different attacks. What's weird about verses one and two is that it describes a very frontal, aggressive attack. All these nations gathering together to arm for war, right? But when you get to verse three, it's going to shift to a, a second kind of attack, which is an attack of deception or somebody coming in with sheep's clothing on, but on the inside, they're wolves. They want something. So we're going to, this is a really interesting chapter. As we look at this as a frame for our Christian lives, as we start to gather together and read God's word and we do it in a public place, I love that. We're going to get people that try to disrupt this. And we as a group need to know how to handle that, like with grace and love and food and offer of barbecue. But there's going to be people that don't like that we're teaching God's word and we're studying it and we're doing it with diligence like we're asked to do. Uh, notice that at the end of verse 2 that these nations are with one accord. It's odd how the enemy unites around being an enemy of Israel or God's people, right? That's the one thing they can agree on, which is kind of interesting because we see that in the world too. We see very disparate groups agreeing on issues like abortion. We see very different kinds of groups agreeing on, well, we can't have anything about the Bible in our schools and we need to take down those Ten Commandments. So we see this all over the place, that you see groups of people that are normally different, even conflicting with each other. But when it comes to God's law and God's people, they're in total agreement about what to do in those situations. So we see that here. They're with one accord. We don't see that often where the enemy's people are with one accord. But on this, they are. So as God's people start to move in unity and they start relying on what God says, then we get the word and here. And this happens. It goes together. And I think that's out of those first two verses, that's an important concept to get. As we start to study God's word, the enemy will start to realize that we're a threat to the kingdom because it's awesome to study God's word. It's joyful to realize the truth and perfection of God's word, to go out with confidence and be able to talk about it. The enemy doesn't like that. And there is an enemy. So in chapter nine, we get these two attacks on Israel. One and two is that blatant attack. And then verses three through six is this kind of deceptive attack. Both of them are attacks against Israel. They're going at the core of what God's people are supposed to be consulting God on things. So verse three, we'll get into the second attack. But when the inhabitants of Gibeon heard what Joshua had done in Jericho and Ai, they worked craftily, I like that word, and went and pretended to be ambassadors. And they took old sacks on their donkeys, old wineskins torn and mended, old and patched sandals on their feet, and old garments on themselves. And all the bread of their provisions was dry and moldy. And they went to Joshua to, camp, to the camp at Gilgal. And they said to him and to the men of Israel, we've come from a far country. Now, therefore, make a covenant with us. Make a deal with us. Oh, there's so much here. Okay, we're going to sit on these for a little bit and unpack them. Get your highlighters ready. Um, first of all, Gibeon is the, the, uh, the, we know this from archaeology. There were four cities that were in league together and had the same commerce that they used because we can find coins, right? Of those four cities, the four cities together are called the Hivites. So if you look back at verse 1, they're in the list of the people that gathered together with one accord to go against Israel. So they either are breaking from that one accordness or within the space of a period, they're actually part of that and they're attacking within a different way. So we don't know which, it doesn't say, but we do know that the Gibeon or the city of Gibeon is one of the Hivite cities. In Deuteronomy 20, 17, God told the Israelites these cities were slated for destruction. None of their gods were to be left standing. None of their idols were supposed to be left there. They're supposed to get rid of all of it. So the Gibeonites 
are listening to him read the law. They're seeing him move in. They see Jericho. They see Ai and Bethel's failure. To, to, and, and they're going to come in and if you can't beat them. So we were watching Kingdom of Heaven. Great scene at the beginning of the movie where they're lear learning to use a two-handed sword. And the thing with the two-handed sword is it's like a lawnmower blade. When you're in the battlefield, that's a lot of momentum with a very long sword going around. The safest place to be on the battlefield when somebody's got a two-handed sword is at the handle of the sword. You don't want to be anywhere outside here. You want to get as close to that person as you can. In fact, it's the only safe place to be in hand-to-hand -hand combat with a two-handed sword. Because it's so dang big and heavy, it'll go right through your armor. I know that's gory, but that's what the Gibeonites are thinking. The closest place to be with this kind of weapon coming through the promised land is to get inside the circumference of that circle. And if they can draw close to Israel, they're not in damage range from them, right? So this is a strategy that people can have or as they do this. So uh, being part of this council, then they, they then go and try to make a covenant with Israel. They're breaking ties. And I think we're going to see later in the chapter that the rest of the alliance doesn't like this, right? So they're breaking ties with that alliance of evil and they're saying, you know, if you can't beat them, let's join them. Let's jump on board with what Israel's doing. So they come in deceptively to do that. We got to deal with the deception. Later on, Gibeon as a city is going to be a Levitical city. This is an origin story because Gibeon's going to be a special spot in the Holy Land. It's going to be one of the Levitical cities. Uh, in 2 Chronicles 1.3, this is where Solomon prays for wisdom. You know, you can have anything in the world, Solomon. He says, I just want wisdom to lead my people. That's at Gibeon where he prays that prayer. So this is a pretty cool spot in the kingdom. Um, but verse 4, we got to deal with this first. Verse 4 says they worked craftily. The word is orma in the Hebrew. It means shrewd with guile or willily. Is that a word? But it's spelled W-I-L-I-L-Y. Wilily. Wily? Willy? Willily? I don't know. Uh, wise and prudent. And so what they're doing is actually, that word crafty there, it could be read as wise. They're actually working with some wisdom here. And the enemy is capable of doing things shrewdly and smartly and prudently. And even if they don't necessarily have a faith in Yahweh, to abandon your idols and take a chance with the Israelites is smarter than fighting the Israelites. This is a step up for them. And I think when we deal with people that aren't aggressively against a life with God, that's a great, that's a step closer to being in a life with God. Or, or if they're really aggressive against God, that could be their conviction role in too. So work on both types. Um, they come with false pretenses. This is a, a false friendship. And we got to be aware of this. This is where God tells us to be wise also. There are people that will come in amongst fellowships of people and they got an agenda. And this is something we got to watch in our own heart because we're all sinners. When you come into a body of people, there's two ways to enter that community. What can I get from this group? And that's how you rate them. Well, I get so much out of this. But be careful with that attitude because you're kind of a wolf, right? You're coming there. If what you get is to study the word of God, amen, praise the Lord, because that's exactly why the rest of us are here too. But if you're coming here to get something or change something, and I was, trying, I was talking to Steph all week, like how do you get this down into just a sentence? And I think it's that some people come and they want to make changes to that body when they walk in the door. And that's all that's in their head is what can we do differently? And some people come and just say, I'm so blessed, I just like being here. I'm just going to enjoy what's here right now because this is what God has. And they come with that, I need something, the word of God, the presence of the body, prayer and the Holy Spirit and the ministry of the saints. And I just want to absorb that every week. And what a great place to be. And from there, when you get unity of spirit around that, God can do things. And he has done things. And we get to see him do things. And that's a joy. But we all have to fight against that attitude of how can we change that thing? Because I think that's the flesh. And that's what Gibeon's doing here. They're coming with a false friendship. Oh, we love what you guys are doing. We just want a covenant with you. But they're doing it under false pretenses. They're pretending to be something they're not when they walk in the door. Notice they, they go up to Israel and invite this conversation because they have an agenda. They want to eat, right? And they're coming in with that idea and they're coming into the flock and they're pretending to be, and, and it also says they work craftily and it also says they're pretending to be something they're not of false guys. We see that today too, people pretending that they're something they're not. 
That's a tough thing. It's an indication of someone that recognizes what they're supposed to be and they imitate it instead of humbly trying to become it. Does that make sense? These are really thick concepts. The place to start with God is to just be broken and humble yourself like Joshua did in the last chapter, just threw himself on the ground and said, I'm lower than dirt, God. That's where I get to start. That's how important I am. And then you can move from that point and move forward. So they have this provision in Deuteronomy 20 that they can make treaties, Israel can make treaties with people outside the Holy Land. Gideon, or Gideon knows enough about God's law that they're going to play on that rule. So they're asking for a covenant and they dress up like they're not, like all this old garments and everything is to pretend like they've made a very long journey. Like they're far, far away from the Holy Land because they actually know God's law. So this idea that Israel's coming in and they're attacking people that are completely oblivious, it's just not the case. There's every indication that they know God's law and they're being little lawyers. They're trying to find a loophole in the law. And the only way you can find loopholes is if you actually know and have read the law. Or maybe they listened in at Mount Ebel and they just heard them read that chapter and they said, that's it, that's, that's our end right there. We can pretend we're not there. So Deuteronomy 20, specifically it says, when you go near a city to fight it, proclaim and offer peace to the city. You remember this from back in Deuteronomy? Some of us do. The first thing Israelites are supposed to do when they go to a city outside the Holy Land is proclaim peace to it. We'll have peace with you. And it shall be that if they accept your peace and are open to you, then all the people found in it are placed under tribute and they serve you. It's super easy. So this is what Gibeon's trying to do. They're playing off that rule. So they're, they're offering peace. They're open to them. They want to make that rule as soon as they can. Um, we weren't told how they knew these things, but we know that they know these things. And I think that's a big point. So... Next, they have all their old stuff. They come with false evidence. Look at all these things I've done and look at all these things we've had. Look at how far we've come from. Look at all these great things in our history. In God's kingdom, the works don't matter. So this is a tough thing because even when you deal with people that call themselves believers, when they come up with a list of all the great things they've done, they're missing the point, right? It goes back to Janet Jackson. What have you done for me lately? And what we're supposed to do is daily come before God and repent and humble ourselves before the Lord. That's the starting point every day. So when we go out and we say, oh, I've done this and I've done that and this, you might have a long list. Some of you guys are really active in the kingdom and that's awesome. But the point of us sharing those stories is to glorify God, not to glorify ourselves. So they come with craftiness. They're pretending to be something they're not. They bring false evidence to the table. Um, and then they point at it, directing the attention to what they want Joshua to be looking at. And then they say, we've come from a far country, which is an overt lie. They're just not telling the truth. So we have people that claim to be good, and they're really just there. Matthew 7, verse 15 says, Beware of false prophets. They come to you in sheep's clothing, but in inwardly they're ravenous wolves. You will know them by their fruits. And that verse was going through my head as I was going through this chapter this week, just over and over and over again. How do we discern who's here to humbly hear the word of God and who's here to just get something from us? And that's a tough thing because we love them both and we want both of those people to be in the kingdom. But we have to do some discernment and God calls us to do that discernment, to think about who's a wolf and who's honestly just trying to glorify God. And if glorifying God means cleaning the garbage or taking care of the rest of the strawberries, or glorifying God means to put the chairs back when we're done. Or glorifying God means to not do any of that and just pray with somebody who needs prayer and let other people take care of the housekeeping. Then we have to just be serving God in that kind of way. Does that make you with me on that? All right. Verse 8. Oh, I'm sorry, verse 7. Then the men of Israel said to the Hivites, see in verse 7 they call them Hivites. They're from Gibeon. They are Hivites. That's not a mistake in the Bible. Perhaps you dwell among us Perhaps you dwell among us, so how can we make a covenant with you? They're suspicious, and they're rightly suspicious. God's using something in the spirit there to give them some indication that there's something awry here, but they, they don't actually go to consult God. They inquire of the person, the person who's already deceiving them. So what are they going to do? They're going to continue to deceive them, and they will be deceived. Um, there is a suspicious tone there, and I just wanted to pick up on that. Um, God is, the reason they're asking this, 
perhaps you dwell among us is because they are supposed to, in Exodus 23, 24, they are supposed to overthrow those cities and those idols that are in those cities. So that's the distinction of, are you in the country or out the country? And by that question, when the Israelites ask that, both the Israelites know the law and the Gibeonites know the law. So everybody involved here knows what God's word says. Neither one of them consult with God as to the situation and the relationship. And that's going to be a problem. So in verse 8, it says, But they said to Joshua, We are your servants. Servants, um, let's just be clear here. That's a lie because servants don't try to deceive their masters unless they're really bad servants that are about to get fired. Um, but when they, it's basically a, a sign of, um, historically speaking, this is something that an ambassador or a delegation would do to say that we are at your service. Kind of like we say it, we still kind of say that today. Whatever I can do to help you, let me know. So it's a courtesy kind of thing. Um, and Joshua says to them, well, who are you and where do you come from? Like he's trying to nail down with this. That's a respectful tone. There's a respectful language there. He's dealing peaceably with them. Um, it's not confrontational language. In verse 9, they say to him, from a very far country. Notice the vagueness. They don't name a city and they don't name a place. It's really vague. Uh, very far country, your servants have come because of the name of the Lord your God. For we have heard of his fame and all that he did in Egypt and all that he did to the two kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan, to Sihon, the king of Heshbon, and Og, the king of Bashan, who was at Ashtaroth. All right. Nine and ten are big verses for the entire book of Joshua because we see here evidence that they knew everything that was happening. To think that the ancient world didn't have communication networks is foolish. They were not dumber than we are today. They were very smart, intelligent people. They built pyramids, right? They knew how to communicate. So this idea that the Canaanites didn't know what God had said and didn't know his law, and they didn't know that God had worked miraculously with the Egyptians, these two verses give us some kind of embedded historical evidence here that they knew exactly what was going on. They were, these stories were going all around the world, just like we saw before. And those stories meant clear out of the land that you've settled in because it's land God's giving to the Israelites or the children of Shem. And they were going to get that land and they all knew it. So the word is out. In verse 9 and 10, they say they're coming from a far country. They're doubling down on their lie. So instead of consulting with the liars, they should have consulted with God. And I think this is one of the things when it comes to interpersonal relationships, sometimes we rely on what liars tell us instead of relying on the people that we know to be truthful or relying on God himself and praying about it and seeking his consultation, no matter how good the recommendation is. And we got awesome recommendations amongst this group of people. We have a lot of strong personalities and I like that. But you'll notice when you come to me with those, I'll be like, I'll pray about it and we'll pray about it. And I'm doing my best. I call Mike and I'm like, Mike, you know, what do you think about this? I'll call people that I know that are wise, that have been down that road before, and I'll pray about it myself. And at the end of the day, either God's saying go or God's saying not to. And where he's saying go, we go no matter what. It doesn't matter if we got the resources, time or money or energy or people. We just go because God said it. And if God says no, wait on that, okay, we'll wait on that. Or God just says no, and sometimes I got to come back and say, yeah, we're just not going to do that. We're not there. And that's a really tough place to be. I feel a lot of responsibility in that. So pray for me in those things. But here's the situation where they got people and they are lying to them. They're lying. They're doubling down on their lie. When they're lying, even though they name God in verse 9, they're not honoring God in verse 9. This is a tough spot. And because of the name of the Lord, your God, not the Lord, our God, right? So there, there's still a distance there. I would, I'm going to argue, though, that's better than the rest of the Canaanites right now. They are at a place where at least they're respecting your religion. You know people like that, right? Mandy's got her, her former Muslim friend who respects that she's a Christian, and there's still distance there. But man, that's so much of a... Now we can talk. At least, we're having, at least they're having a conversation with the Gibeonites, where they're not even talking to these other kings. They're arming for war. And there's not even a, a conversation there. So they see the power 
They know the power of God. They want to be underneath the swathing two-handed sword of God's people. And they want to be close to the people of God, but they've yet to embrace those things and join with it. What do you do as God's people with those kinds of folks? And I would venture to say our response to those folks would be, come in for the hug. You don't have to be, don't worry about it. We'll take you where you're at in that place. And I think that's what God's going to do with this situation. Verse 11, therefore our elders and all the inhabitants of our country spoke to us saying, take provisions with you for the journey and go to meet them and say to them, we're your servants. Now therefore make a covenant with us. So they state their desire, what they want, right along with all these compliments. This is what's called a compliment sandwich. We love you guys. We think you're great. We need a covenant because we don't want you to kill us. And we love you and we think you're great. <laughs> right? So verse 12, this bread of ours we took hot for our provision from our houses on the day we departed to come to you. But now look, it's dry and moldy. And these wineskins, which were filled new, see, they're torn. And these garments, our sandals, have come old because of the very long journey. So this is now getting to be an elaborate lie. They're adding detail to their lie. And when you ask a liar about things, if they're going to double down on that lie, the lie gets more and more elaborate and it gets bigger and bigger. And there's holes in that lie, right? For instance, you could pretty much come from Spain to the Middle East and you wouldn't like have a wrecked wineskin necessarily, right? Especially if you took a boat. So, and if they're walking, why, you know, there's, there's things here they should have been picking up on, but they're not going to be overly suspicious. Um, but they're anxious to show their proof of their situation. Have you ever met somebody who's anti-Christ and they're anxious to show you their proof, right? Oh, there's problems in the Bible. There's errors. And well, what, what errors are you talking about? Well, you know, there's just tons of them. Well, can we get specific on that? Well, sure. I'll get you specifics later, but I know there's just tons. And you get into that, but they want to point you to these problems and these errors, and they're anxious to do that. So um, they're seeking to harbor with God's people and avoid being a footnote in history. Um, but again, they got some issues they got to work on here. There are tons of parallels with Joshua with the book of Acts. And I know some of the ladies are looking at the book of Acts right now. Um, I want to read from Acts chapter 8. If you want to flip there, just go forward in your Bibles, you know a good chunk. And the early church dealt with people that were just like the Gibeonites. They came in, had on the sheep's clothing, but they really just wanted something from the church and they were desperate to get that thing from the church. And the church still had to discern, what do you do with these people? Um, so in Acts chapter 8, uh, I'll start in verse 13. Um, it says there's this guy named Simon himself also believed. And when he was baptized, he continued with Philip and was amazed seeing the miracles and signs which were done. So we get the context of this character named Simon in the book of Acts. And he believes in the Lord God. So do the Gibeonites. They believe in the power of this Yahweh, right? And he's following Philip around. The Gibeonites are saying, we want to be part, we want to covenant with you. So he's actually in the body of believers, and he's hanging out with the believers, this Simon guy. Now I'm going to flip down to verse 18. And when Simon saw that through laying on of the apostles' hands, the Holy Spirit was given, he offered them money, saying, Give me this power also, that anyone on whom I lay hands may receive the Holy Spirit. But Peter said to him, Your money can perish with you, because you thought that the gift of God could be purchased with money. You have neither part nor portion in this matter, for your heart is not right in the sight of God. And that's kind of the end of Simon. Like he just kind of disappears, right? He's cursed after that. Do you see that? So the Gibeonites are going to get cursed too. And interestingly enough though, it's not, we don't see that Simon's like sent packing or anything. Like he could still be following Philip around for all we know. But this idea that Peter just dismisses him and Peter doesn't have anything to do with them is kind of what's going to happen to the Gibeonites. But it's this exact same situation. That person coming in saying, oh, I love what you guys are doing. This is so awesome. This is so great. But they really just want something. And it's not God. It's something that they want in the flesh. And Simon's the same way. He's actually hanging with the believers and has this situation. So the self-serving see the fruits of God's people and they want the fruits, but they don't want to submit to the humility and the brokenness and the repentance of sin that comes before the fruits. 
And it's a tough situation. It's hard to discern because you're just looking at the flock. They all look like sheep. And they all look like just Jesus people. But you have this kind of thing. They'll say, I want your community uh, and I want the fellowship in the community. Uh, You have this great food. I want to eat your food. You have this peace, this joy, this love that's there and this friendship. And I want that too. But I never want to submit to ministry. And I don't want to hold you up and lift your ministry up in prayer. And I don't want to do the work of ministering one to another, right? I want all the good stuff, but I don't want to do any of the stuff that, that is hard for me to do in the flesh. And that's, those folks will say whatever they think you want to hear to be on a good relationship with them. Instead of just being transparent in the Holy Spirit. Here's who I am. Here's what I don't know. Here's what I do know. And pretty much all that I know is the word of God, Right? They'll offer help, resources, provisions. They'll be some of the best donors. Like one of the biggest donors to the, the, the church right now is actually the governor of California, right? So he, he lost a few million dollar lawsuits if you don't know the news story. These folks will come in and they'll just, they're all excited and I'll do this and I'll do this and I'll do that and I'll do this. And a lot of times you guys know this, we'll just say, why don't you just chill and be blessed? Why don't you find out what we're doing here, receive what we got, and actually meet one other person in our community and build a relationship, build one relationship before you come with all the stuff, right? And because when you take the time to get to know somebody, there's no glory in that. There's just love. The only reason you do that is because you care about somebody. So if you can't start with that building block, then all this other stuff is nuts. It's just noise. It's chaos and it's disruption. Start with love. Start with a relationship. Get to know one other person first and build that up from there. And then you get to have cool conversations like Alyssa was having, right? Just get to know somebody. And that's where ministry happens. It's where true repentance and those kind of God stories start to form. It's in those things. It's not in all the other stuff. Though the food's really good. Verse 14. Then the men of Israel took some of their provisions, but they did not ask the counsel of the Lord. And this is the middle of the chapter, right? This is the core of it. They didn't ask the counsel of the Lord. And they took their provisions. Remember the provisions were moldy bread? Why would you do that? Because in the ancient world, when you break bread together, it's symbolic. You trust each other. There's a covenant. So they are sucking down that moldy bread, accepting their word when they do it. And I don't know, there's some... (laughs) I couldn't help but think there's some great images in that idea. They trust their eyes, but they're not trusting God. See the contrast in verse 14? They're examining what they see, and then they they took some, accepting these claims that these people are making, and they're making this covenant by eating that bread, accepting their truth. And I just thought, you know, this is what it is. The world offers us things that are good, but they're not God. Here's a good opportunity, but it's not God. And at the end of the day, the good opportunities can be like moldy bread. The world pretty much only has that to offer us. And God offers us the bread of life. And if they would have just consulted with God, this would have been a much better meal. So they make the same mistake they essentially made back in chapter 7. In chapter 7, they didn't consult God and they marched off to war. In this chapter, they don't consult God and they march off to peace. It doesn't, both of peace sounds better than war, but when it's outside of God's will, it's both going to end up being a bad situation. If you go and do anything without consulting the Lord and march forward, you're presuming you know better than God does. It's a really, this is, again, we're getting into the thick, deep kind of the Christian life kind of conversations here. And these are tough concepts. They did not ask the counsel of God. Counsel of God will always come back with one of three answers. Yes, no, or wait. And in my life, in my experience, it's almost always been wait. Just wait and let God do the work. Notice that whenever they win victories, God does almost everything and they do pretty much nothing. So, all right. They did not ask the counsel of God. I'm only on page five. God wants people to walk by faith, not by sight. It's not what you see, it's what God tells you. And that's where the, that's where the treasure is. So Joshua made peace with them and made a covenant with them and let them live. And the rulers of the congregation swore to them. So they make all their oaths. They bind it all up. Uh, The nature of this deception is Joshua really doesn't know the truth of the matter while he's making these covenants. 
Uh, the rulers, not just Joshua, he's not the only one to blame. Everybody's on board by welcoming these people into the club. And then they swear their alliance. Uh, I would venture to say when they trust the world without God's counsel, there's nothing here that indicates necessarily that this swearing, it's not a good thing because they didn't consult the Lord, but it's also not a sin to make a covenant with people. They just made the wrong covenants and they didn't consult the Lord for it. And the Lord's going to have to go and fix this right now. And that's a debate. We can talk about it afterwards that you want, but it doesn't necessarily, there's nothing in the text that says or indicates that God was furious or angry or that they needed to repent from this situation. The Gibeonites need to make some things right, but they don't. Does that make sense? Um, so bringing peace is not going to be a bad thing. God's not holding that against them for some reason but they could have consulted God and it'd go a lot better. Verse 16, and it happened at the end of three days after they made a covenant with them that they heard that, heard that they were their neighbors who dwelt with them. So three days later, a rumor starts going around. Ah, the suckers, we got them. And they, they eventually, it gets back to the leadership and they're like, wait, you guys are Gibeonites? And it's, the truth always gets out. And just know that if you happen to be a lying type person, at some point you're going to get caught. But I hope we don't have those folks here today. Verse 17, Then the children of Israel journeyed and came to their cities on the third day, and now their cities were Gibeon, Sherephath, Beeroth, Kirith-Jerim. So those four cities have all been found. They're dug up. They're right where the Bible says they should be. And they're all united, and they all have similar kind of cultural, historical backgrounds. That's the quick summary. Um, they uncover the lie is the point of these verses. And then in uh, verse 19, they are rightly upset because they were supposed to push these people out of the land. These people were supposed to run. Um, verse 19, then all the rulers said to all the congregation, we have sworn to them by the Lord God of Israel. Now, therefore, we cannot touch them. This we will do to them. We will let them live, lest the wrath be upon us because of the oath which we swore to them. So to keep our word is part of how we bear the image or banner of God. And it says we should not bear false witness, right? We should not um, take up the Lord's name in vain. When we make vows and we make commitments, when we say that with our mouth and we do it as Christians, God takes that extremely seriously. So sometimes we carry out contracts even though they stink, a la jobs we don't like, right? You've signed a one-year contract, you fulfill the contract. You gave your word. Because to break your word in those situations is to actually break the reputation of God as someone who keeps promises in a very holy kind of way. So they take it seriously in verse 19 and 20. If a man makes a vow, swears an oath to bind himself to some agreement, he shall not break his words. Number 30, Numbers 30, verse 2. He shall do according to all that proceeds out of his mouth. So one thought is you should always seek out God's counsel on things but they didn't, and now they made a vow, now they have to keep it. So they're stuck in this situation. Um, also note that what's saving the Gibeonites here is not their craftiness, it's actually God's word that's saving them, right? Because normally in the flesh, you'd be like, you lied to us, you're dead, mass murder, right? But it's, they're actually relying on God's word to save them. This is funny when you talk to atheists, right? because they have to borrow from God's law in order to make their arguments. Well, I just don't think that there's a God because what kind of God would do this, this, and that? And you'd say, where do you get that moral code from, right? And any kind of moral code that there is a right and a wrong is coming directly out of a Judeo-Christian tradition or out of some sort of faith tradition. To even make the claim that there's right action and wrong action, you have to have something that defines right and wrong action. And I just love that the Gibeonites here, they're being saved by God's word, even though they're not honoring God's word. And I just love that image of how God works. God loves people and he will keep his word even when evil, evil people don't, to our, own, to our own detriment sometimes. Even today, this idea of keeping our word is no less serious. And Joshua keeping his word is a big deal. Uh, so they make a point out of it. Uh, again, one of the big critiques of Joshua is that these are bloodthirsty people. Verses 19 and 20 are in direct contradiction to that premise. These are not bloodthirsty people. These are people that are not attacking, even though they had just right action or cause to do it. But they're choosing not to. Why? Because of God's word. So apparently God's word does not make a bunch of bloodthirsty killers in the ancient world. Apparently, if you actually read the book, 
it's kind of the opposite of that. These are people not killing when they, sh when they have just cause to do so. They've been deceived. Um, so they, uh, they keep their vow. In keeping the vow, they're going to kind of get blessed here. Uh, in fact, when we see other places in the Bible where God's people break their vows, they get cursed in those situations. It's pretty quick and fast and, and, and easy. Um, still, there's an alliance based on this whole situation, and there's room to address this. Yes, there's room to address it. So God will deal with it. Verse 21, And the rulers said to them, Let them live, but let them be woodcutters and water carriers for all the congregation, as the rulers had promised them. So wood and water are the two things you need to do sacrifices. If you want to do a burnt offering, guess what you need a lot of? You need a lot of wood. And if it's a dry day, you want to have lots of water around. So you want to be able to, to handle that fire in some way, shape, or form. So being woodcutters and water carriers is not that every Israelite gets a personal water carrier. It's that the temple gets water carriers, right? So they're going to, and we're going to see that later in the, in the Bible too. And um, they're going to be servants of the servants of God. Um, in fact, that's what was predicted of these people way back in Genesis. So God's actually fulfilling a prophecy here. If you want to flip back to Genesis 9 and look at that spot, there's a, an odd little thing that didn't make a lot of sense until we get to Joshua chapter 9. Genesis chapter 9 says, Then he said, Cursed be Canaan, a servant of servants he shall be to his brethren. And he said, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Shem, and Canaan may be his servant. Well, how can he be his servant if Canaan's being pushed out of the promised land? Because most of the Canaanites are being driven out. They're either being killed or they're migrating right now. And they're getting the heck out of there. Also, how do you become a servant of servants in Israel? There's one tribe that gets turned into servants, the Levites. And the Levites are going to get a whole group of people that are going to be the servants. Uh, the cursed be Canaan, the sons of Canaan, um, with no other was Shem, Japheth and Ham. Ham's son was Canaan. And then the Gideonites or the Hivites are descendants of the, they're one of the Canaanite groups. So by becoming servants of the Levites, they become servants of servants fulfilling this prophecy. Kind of cool. And Joshua called for them and he spoke to them. Why have you deceived us? He says, saying we are very far from you when you dwell near us. I love how Joshua just brings him into the room and says, you said this and now that's not true. Why did you do that? Now, therefore, you are cursed. He doesn't even wait for an answer. It doesn't, the answer doesn't matter. You ever talk to a little kid like this? And you're like, why did you steal the cake? It really doesn't matter what the kid says at that point. The point is stealing the cake was wrong. You shouldn't have done that. So Joshua's just skipping over the childlike excuses, and he's going right to the consequences. The consequences are you are cursed, and none of you shall be freed from being slaves, woodcutters and water carriers for the house of my God. So... Where Achan gave a false apology, remember when we went through Achan and we kind of dissected his apology and it was a false apology? It wasn't a real one. What we're going to see in the next few verses is the opposite example. This is kind of what I would argue is a sincere apology. They actually apologize and repent of their lies. So in this sense, God's going to kind of redeem this situation. So by bringing these people out and taking all these lies bringing the Gideonites back in front of the people and putting everything out in the daylight. Notice how the power of the lie is just evaporated. Lies love dark spots. They're like cockroaches. If lies stay under the radar, they, the little gossip stories between individuals in the corners, they're great. You put it out in front with everybody hearing it, the lie just goes away. There's no power left in it. So they answer, verse 24. They're powerless at this point. Their lie, their lie is gone. They answered Joshua and said, because your servants were clearly told, first, they define themselves as servants. This is not just an ambassadorial courtesy anymore. They're actually calling themselves servants. Their very first words accept the consequences of their action. Oh, yep, we're your servants. We are clearly told that the Lord your God commanded his servant Moses to give you all the land and to destroy all the inhabitants of the land from before you. Therefore, we were very much afraid for our lives because of you and, and have done this thing. And now here we are in your hands. Do with us as it seems good and right to do with us. They're just throwing themselves at Joshua's feet. They're going to the feet of Yeshua and saying, I don't care anymore. I'm done. We give up. Because I know that I had death coming. And I know that, and notice that it says there, 
we're clearly told. It's an emphatic. It means there's no doubt in their mind about what the, the plan is here. And they're not Israelites. So is it a situation where they have their own priests like Balaam telling them, no, Israel's coming and they're going to win? Like are, are the demonic forces of these other religions actually unable to say anything other than the truth? Like we saw that with Balaam, and maybe that's why that story was there, is that story was being repeated in all these different nations. It doesn't, again, it doesn't tell us how they came to this knowledge, but it does tell us the nature that they were clearly told what was going to happen here. There's no doubt in what's going on. If anybody goes to hell, it's, because, it's not because they haven't been clearly told the situation and the call that they have on their lives. And if they haven't heard the gospel, then that's kind of our fault. We're supposed to tell them, right? So they're clearly told that the Lord, your God, they're still depersonalizing it, and it's Joshua's God, commanded his servant Moses to give you all the land to destroy all the inhabitants. They know that they're going to be destroyed, dispersed, melted, dissolved. That's that's what they're doomed to have happen. And we're not any different, y'all. I mean, we're in the same boat, right? Outside of Jesus Christ, we are sinners. Our doom is to be dissolved or destroyed. That is what's coming to us. So what do you do in the face of that knowledge? You throw yourself at the feet of Jesus and say, do whatever you need to do to me. My life is yours. I give up control of my life. I sacrifice my life and I give it to you. And that's actually what they do. No excuses. They give a truthful reasoning for why they did it. And they throw themselves at his feet and they admit that they're very much afraid. I think sometimes the fear of hell is a motivator to get saved. It's what got me saved. It wasn't the, when I was, before I was a believer, my idea of heaven was like clouds and little golden harps and little feathered things all over. And I'm like, eh, you know, who needs that? But hell, I had a vivid imagination for that too. And that I did not want. And when I heard the gospel, I was like, sign me up. If that's all it takes, like I give up my life and God can use it how he wants, I'm in. I'm all in, right? And that idea, that idea of fear of hell is something that does motivate these folks to come right into the kingdom of God and throw themselves at the feet of Joshua. So they do it deceptively at first, and this is why we don't necessarily shoo these people away. They're one step away from just, a, they're there because there's something they know they want. All you got to do is connect the dots. If you want it, you have to give up the lie. Stop pretending that you can get into the kingdom with your own works. So, and they're ready to serve. I love that too. I, you know, here's another verse. I was thinking of Psalm 84 with this one. Better is one day in your courts than thousands elsewhere. I'd rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God than dwell in the tents of the wicked. That's where Gibeon's at, right? You know what? Wood carriers and water, wood cutters and water carriers. Amen to that. I'm in. I would rather get into heaven as a sweeper of the streets and the sewage guy than to not get into heaven and be a king in, in, in hell. Who would want that, right? I just want to be in the presence of the Lord. I just want to be in the camp of Israel. I just want to be with God's people because here is life and out there is death and it's certain death because your God is all powerful. So even that humble of a repentance works and we need to know that it works because I think sometimes we put a high standard on ourselves but if, you're, if that's where people are at and they're like, all I know, I don't know anything about how to talk Christian. I didn't grow up Christian. I don't know anything about Christian anything. But if all it takes is for me to say, Jesus, your life is mine. I repent of my sins. I don't have any power over that. Amen to that. Welcome to the kingdom. We'll teach you the language. You know, that's the easy part. Come for Bible teaching. You'll learn what the Bible says. And then that idea that they're ready to serve right at the end of that repentance. We're ready. To, what do you want from us? So he puts them to work. He actually, so he did to them in verse 26 and delivered them out of the hand of the children of Israel so that they did not kill them. And that day Joshua made them woodcutters and water carriers for the congregation and for the altar of the Lord. So they're going to serve in the temple in the place which he would choose even to this day. So being slaves is better than being dead. He does deliver them and he does not kill them. One interesting phrase in those verses is it says, uh, he made them. And that day Joshua made them woodcutters. That is not like he went out with whips. And like it's not like a, an Egyptian version of making people do things. It's not an act of force. That verb there is Nathan. Is The word is Nathan, which is where we get the name Nathan from. And it means to give or to bestow something. 
And in 1 Chronicles 9.2, the Gibeonites are not referred to as Gibeonites anymore. They're, called, they're referred to as the Nephinims. And the Nephinims are from that same root word of Nathan, to give. Somebody who gives something. So they give up their life. Joshua gives them to the service of the temple. This is an awesome solution. They get to be closer to God than anybody else. This is wonderful. What a blessing. Compare this to like the half-tribe of Manasseh and Reuben and Gad. They're not even on this side of the river, right? God, but these people get to be drawn close and get to see what's going on. And forevermore, their new title is the given ones, the Nethanim. And this is, they become the given ones throughout the rest of history. This is an amazing thing. And then you think, that they gotta, for all of eternity, they have to, when you meet one of these folks in heaven, we can remind them of their deception and whatever. And they're like, yeah, but that's before that all got brought into the light. And then we just repented. And if you got to call me names, and if you got to remember in eternal history that we were the deceivers, but now we're the given ones. What a transition in a sentence. You see what Joshua just did there? He just took a no good, nothing, horrible person and turned him into an absolute servant of the king. Think of the story of Paul in the book of Acts. He took the murderer and turned him into a different person with a different name that became the evangelizer. And he does that with us too. He can turn our nothingness into something and he can do it at a word. He can take a curse and turn it into a blessing. And that's what God does. It's amazing what he does with that. So you die to yourself. Yeshua delivers them from death and they get to serve God forever. Sound familiar? And we see that pattern throughout the Old Testament. It's again and again and again. And when Jesus preaches it, it's why it struck a chord. is because the Jewish people were prepared for this vision of salvation. Come to God, throw yourself at his feet. It doesn't matter under what condition you do that. Jesus can save you. And he can just forgive you of your sins. Even when you brought the sins right to his doorstep. Because Jesus is just bigger than that. So this is an origin story. This is the beginning of the Nethanim. And it sounded like an attack against God's kingdom at the beginning of the chapter. It was premised as an attack. But God takes that attack and turns it into something beautiful. And he's also going to deal with the other people that actually assault. But that's coming up. So they end up serving the tabernacle. Both Ezra and Nehemiah list the Nethanim as people that came back from Babylon. Remember the people that came back from Babylon were the, were the go-getters? They're the ones that wanted to rebuild the, the temple in the promised land. So they came of their own accord. They actually choose to follow in their role as woodcutters and water carriers. They're now proud of that role. Have you ever met blue-collar workers that are proud of what they do? Darn right they're proud of what they do. They build the country we live in. And that's how these people started to embrace that. Well, if you're going to rebuild a temple, you need your water carriers and you need your woodcutters. We're in. Let's go. So they travel back from Babylon. They choose to keep that duty. The Gibeon then becomes a city of priests. It's actually going to house the Ark of the Covenant. What an honor for the city of Gibeon, right? First Chronicles 16.39. They help rebuild Jerusalem, Nehemiah 3.7. Uh, and they become, some of them are listed in David's list of mighty men in First Chronicles 12. So some of them actually become warriors and, and champions of the kingdom. So just like Rahab, welcome to the kingdom. Gibeonites, here's another one, welcome to the kingdom. So at each of these steps, we see people falling away from God's will and people coming to God's will. I'm also seeing a pattern in Joshua that it's the Israelites that fall away and it's the Gentiles that come in. So when Joshua is involved, it seems like he's winning those hearts in a really powerful way. So... This is going to further set fear in the enemy's hearts. Imagine if you're at the council of the kings and you've decided you must kill Israel and you're going to get them. And we're all like, yeah, yeah, yeah. And then you leave the meeting and one of the people in the meeting just went and changed sides because they were clearly told what's going to happen to them and they believe it. And then Israel is like, yeah, welcome to the party. We'll have some barbecue for you at the next peace offering. It's coming up in a few weeks. So-and-so is planning it. As we get to Joshua 10, verse 2, if you flip forward just a few verses, it says they feared greatly because Gibeon was a great city. I think this is a good place to make that point too. As one of the royal cities, because it was greater than Ai, and all the men were, mighty, were thereof were mighty. Gibeon was not a weak city. Ai won a battle against Israel, and then they lost. 
Gibeon, maybe it was no Jericho, but it was a mighty city and they had warriors. They had trained soldiers. They could have put up a fight. So we see that in chapter 10, verse 2. Like Gibeon was not a bunch of weaklings. They weren't powerless. These were people that that alliance of kings were depending on. They were thinking these were going to be their gad, their tribe of gad, right? These are going to be the soldiers that are out kicking butt for them. Instead of kicking butt, they just switch sides. Well, now they're fearing greatly. They're not mad. They're fearful. So that idea of fear, you can do one of two things. You can run or you can fight. And they're going to fight. Why would you do that? Just run away or join the Israelites. Those, there's a third option there, I suppose. So competent, intelligent men, now they're, in, they're going to forevermore be God's servants. Uh, I love that. Um, so Achan the Israelite fails, and the Gibeonite Gentiles repent, and they get saved. Achan gets buried in stones. So that's how that's going to work. Like Achan, we got that axe thing with, the, with Simon the sorcerer. Um, don't miss out that after that passage I read in Act eight, Acts 8, there's a rest of the story for Simon the sorcerer too. Right after Simon the sorcerer is traveling around with Philip and Peter curses him, the very next passage is, is Philip going on to convert the Ethiopian. So you've got Simon the sorcerer who's in the crew getting cursed and the Ethiopian getting blessed in full repentance and welcome to the kingdom. And Philip like baptizes them in the desert. I don't know how that happens. Like, are they in an oasis? Mike can figure that one out. Um, but they, they immediately, Simon misses out on the best part of Philip's ministry one sentence beforehand. And if somebody could have just told him like, Simon, just chill and wait. Just watch what happens. You'll learn more by just being part of Philip's ministry than by coming in trying to buy superpowers. And there's no superpowers to be had right? And he just misses out. And I feel that way, like with all these other kings, think of what they're missing. They could have just come into Israel. If Gibeon would have came in truthfully, they might not have even been turned into slaves, right? Or Joshua might have said, no, no, we're supposed to slaughter you all. So you need to either run or we're just going to slaughter you all. It's probably what would have happened. But in this situation, it's like God had it all prepped and he predicted it would happen back in Genesis. Like God knew all this stuff was going to play out. The, clearly the issue here, my point in saying the stuff with Achan and the Gibeonites, the issue here is not whether or not they're Jewish. It's not whether or not they're God's people because the whole planet is God's people. The issue here is who's being sincere and who's being cursed and who's lying and who's telling the truth and who repents and who doesn't repent. The great dividing line of humanity is service to God or defiance against God. It's the only dividing line the Bible shows. Everything else goes away because God doesn't, he made all of the people of the earth, one blood, one people. So if you choose to follow Jesus with that sentiment of humility, Jesus will use you in powerful ways. If you're willing to serve God's kingdom or existing ministries that are already happening, God will bring you right into those ministries. Welcome to the club. If you see your life forfeit, then any job of redemption is better than the life you had before. Even if your life was pretty awesome. Maybe it was really awesome in a worldly sense, but in your heart it wasn't, it was missing something. So you're just like, I'll give up everything the world had to offer. I'll pass on the moldy bread and I'll take this. So I don't know. I always thought when I figured out this humility thing, because it is a thing, right? And I stopped trying to be somebody I'm not in the kingdom. My initial reaction, we're in Madison at the time. And Steph and I realized like these people are real Christians. Mm -hmm. Like we'd gone to churches our whole life. And I don't know if some of you felt that way. We were dealt with people that were more interested in a football game than they were in serving the king. But we got to this church in Madison. It was all these people that they ate a lot of food together, like we do, and they just loved the Lord. And we'd try to talk about worldly stuff with them, and their eyes would just glass over, and they'd be like, okay, yeah. Is God doing anything in your life? Like they're asking if there's fruit. And, and now I'm reading this going, oh, that's where they get that from, huh? And so Steph and I are like, we don't know. We, all we know is we see fruit here. And we have no idea how to do it. So let's just help them do what they're doing. So I was of the attitude, I had this phrase in my head, like, I'll do toilets. Because I hate doing toilets. I don't know about y'all, like, I won't get into the graphic details. But there's stuff in toilets. Like, but I'm just like, I'm like, you know what? I'll do toilets. Like, my pride has to go, it has to get killed. 
and none of that pride can continue to exist. I'll do the toilets. So we went to church and I was like, do you got somebody to do your bathrooms? And Pastor Jeff was like, uh, yeah, we got plenty of people to do that. But I got this home full of people with special needs and they're asking for somebody to come lead a Bible study. Interested? And I was like, praise the Lord. You know, <laughs> Thank you, Lord, it's not toilets. You know, and it was one of those things. And I was even home, you can ask Steph, there was about a half a year there where I was like, I'll do the toilets. And then I, that ended fairly quick, you know. And, and But it was one of those things where it was like, oh, the Lord has so much mercy because I was ready to do the toilets. And I think it's when you get to that point of I'll just, let me put myself at the lowest station I can think of and anything that God puts in front of me that is better than that. And sometimes God, if he really needs to work on your pride, he will have you do the toilets for 10 years because that pride is so strong. He's got to break it. But as soon as he breaks it, then suddenly he starts blessing what you're doing. Or suddenly you just start liking the toilet job. Like, this is cool. I don't have to think. I don't have to work hard. I'm done in like five minutes. Everybody else is here packing chairs up at the end of the service forever. I'm a wimp. I'm the one who sleeps in the bed, not the tent. So like, <laughs> God knows that about me. He knows my heart. You guys know that about me. Whoever desires to save his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Doesn't say how you're going to find it. Doesn't say what God's got for you. Just says you will. It's a promise. This is the confession of a servant, and I don't want to miss what Gibeon does here. They confess like a servant. This is not Aiken's fake, cheesy, junky confession. This is the real deal. I'll just be your servant, Lord. Rather that the things which the Gentiles sacrifice, they sacrifice to demons, not to God. And I do not want you to have fellowship with demons. 1 Corinthians 20, verse 10. It is assumed everything in Gibeon gets destroyed. Because if they're serving God's temple, this, our city is yours. So the destruction of the idols continues to happen, and it's just assumed that that's going to happen. Because God commanded it. So any gods the Gibeons, Gibeonites used to worship, they're gone. We have no evidence of them. From this point forward, they serve Yahweh. And that's what happens. So the primary goal of destruction of all idols and corrupt religion in Canaan is accomplished. The secondary goal, having people serve Yahweh with joy and love and heart with all their heart, mind, and soil, is a, uh, heart, mind, and soul, not soil. That's accomplished too. And God does these wonderful things. So last point about Joshua 9 it's assumed then that what Gibeon just pulled off is an opportunity for every one of these other cities that they're about to conquer, every single one of them. So there's this idea that they just go through like bloodthirsty, ravaging barbarians and kill everybody. It's absolutely not the case. It's not what we see in the book of Joshua. A simple basic read of Joshua shows you civility, self-control, honoring of vows, willingness to give mercy when it's asked for. Um, and it, what amazes me is that Adonai Zedek could have done this too. Instead of fearing Israel, they could come to love and adore God's law, but they won't do it. So they're going to go to war too, but I'm out of time for tonight. Uh, Joshua 10, when we come back next week, that we're going to go to battle with those kings they set up. Chapters 9, 10, and 11 are like one narrative. So it's kind of one big story. And the sun's going to stand still because God's going to give them time to do the destruction that needs to happen to these other people that are coming against the kingdom of Israel. So that story gets precursored by a story of mercy. And I think that that's because God wants us to see his heart before his judgment. It's why he's waiting right now. It's why we're sitting in a coffee shop and we're not in heaven. He wants the whole world to see his mercy before it sees his judgment. But the judgment is coming. And that's well promised throughout the scriptures. So that judgment is going to come in the next chapter. We will get warfare and destruction and all those good things. And the sun's going to stand still, so we have to deal with some physics and all of that kind of thing. So with that said, let's say a word of prayer. Dear Lord and King, we just thank you for your word. We thank you that in your word, Lord, you have, you have put models for us to follow, Lord, like it says in, in, in Hebrews and Romans, that these are examples for us to follow. Lord, help us to be thoughtful and discerning when we deal with people. Um, as we do with people in our work lives and our families uh, and, and folks outside of this little Bible study. Uh, Lord, help us to be wary and understanding of those things. 
Lord, help us to be clear in proclaiming God's word as Joshua did on Mount Ebal, Mount Gerizim. Help us to be with people that do the same. Help us to minister to one another, to offer burnt and peace offerings of our lives together as a group. Help us, Lord, to honor you in all ways. May you get the glory in all things. And Lord, we know that we, there are people that will come amongst us and they, they come with an agenda. Lord, but we know that there is a heart there that you're seeking too, and there's a soul there that you want. So train us, Lord, in how to counsel and welcome those people into the kingdom and get their lies out of the way so that we can get to the truth. And when the truth gets uncovered, Lord, we just pray for their hearts. May they turn to you instead of to themselves, and may they just humble themselves before the king. Lord, we know that we're in the same situation, that we come to you, and sometimes we come to you in false pretenses. Lord, sometimes we just come to you with stuff we want all the time. Lord, you know I'm guilty of that. Um, But Lord, help us to come to you just in gratefulness too, and in praise and in mercy. Help us to come to you because we love your word. Uh, We love the, the, the markings in history that you've given us as a road path that we can clearly know your plans even when we're lost in sin, that we know what you want, And Lord, help us to do it and to carry those things out, to not resist you, Lord, but to repent and and be part of your kingdom. Lord, give us a humble heart that'll clean toilets if we have to. Um, Lord, if that's what you want of us, we'll do it. Uh, We'll do anything because life in the kingdom is better than any life outside the kingdom. So Lord, help us to be all in on that. In Jesus' name, amen. If you found this teaching helpful, insightful, you can support this podcast by sharing it with a friend. Screenshot it, tag it, post it on your social media.